You are listening to the Captain's Coach Podcast, where we provide top insights into sports leadership to inspire team captains to lead their teams more effectively and help coaches to systematically develop and use them. Now, here's your co-host, Luke Poulos. Welcome to the Captain's Coach Podcast, and welcome back to episode two of our Sports Philosophy Series. My guest today is David Papanow. David is a philosophy professor at King's College in London, as well as a professional paid philosopher. He has more recently delved into philosophy of sport with his book, Knowing the Score. It's an extremely fascinating book that uses sports to find the answers to common philosophical questions and using philosophy to answer common questions of sport. He has an extremely interesting and refreshing perspective that I really enjoyed during the conversation. We mostly discussed the topics in Knowing the Score, such as his control action theory, morality, teamwork, and we even dive into amateurism. Again, it was an absolute blast to have David on the show, and I cannot stress enough to go and purchase his book, Knowing the Score. The cover has ancient philosophers pictured with different athletic balls if you're looking for it on Amazon. Anyways, please enjoy my conversation with David Papanow on another episode of the Captain's Coach Podcast. David, thanks so much for coming on the Captain's Coach Podcast. It's great to have you. I'm very pleased to be here. Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned in the intro, your book, Knowing the Score, um, is extremely interesting. Just glossing over some of the reviews and the overviews, if you could just start off by giving us kind of a background on how you came into the sports philosophy world and kind of how the book came to be and a little bit about the book itself. Okay. Well, I'm a, I'm a paid professional philosopher. I've been doing that for getting on for 50 years, I'm ashamed to say. And I'm also uh, always been a keen, not very skillful, but amateur uh, athlete. And, but I never put the two things together until very recently. I mean, I've, I've competed uh, all through my life. I mean, I've got the list here. Uh, since I left school, I've played in competitive games in, in, in eight different sports. Tennis, soccer, golf, rugby, squash, hockey, sailing and cricket. I, I mean, I, I'm not very successful in any of them. But, but I, I never... The philosophy of sport is a rather... Dry technical subject. People talk about about uh, enhancement and want to do about doping and so on. I never got very excited. But then about was London Olympics 2012. There was a seminar series. I was, I was asked to talk about sport and and I started trying to write something about what's the definition of sport and what's the value of sport. And I was getting nowhere. It's really boring. And then I thought. Forget that. I'm going to write about something that interests me, and I don't care if it's philosophy of sport or not. And I started writing about how can athletes in fast reaction sports, like baseball and cricket and tennis, how can they possibly 
shape their shot. They've got less than half, half a second. Mm -hmm. And what's more, how can what they do, which is an instantaneous reflex, be controlled by their chosen tactics? I mean, you might choose to play to the backhand. You might, you know, choose to take a pitch unless it's right in the middle of the, the strike zone. And, and so what you've decided controls your reaction, but your reaction is completely unconscious. So I, I started thinking about that. I mean, it's a, I do philosophy of mind and uh, action control, and I got into it. It was really interesting. And I gave a talk that had lots of examples from, from sport. And, and it was fun. And it was also philosophically very worthwhile. I, I developed a theory of action control that's kind of uh, different from what most philosophers think. But I think you've got to think about action control in this way to understand what's going on in these fast reaction sports. And so after I did that, I thought this is really interesting. Here's a, here's a, a topic where, where both the, the sporting examples help with the philosophical issue, which is an important issue anyway. And conversely, the philosophical analysis casts light on what's going on in the sports. And I started writing a blog about that specific topic. I wrote three or four blog posts. And then I thought, well, there's a bunch of other topics that are a bit similar in that the sporting examples, I mean, I think a sporting examples is like particle accelerators. They show what humans do under, under extreme pressure of time and uh, uh, competition. And it shows you things about humans you don't see otherwise. So I thought sport's really interesting for for various philosophical issues. And conversely, there's things about sport that are better understood if you come at it with a philosophical hat on. And it, and it ended up not being very much to do with the traditional topics in philosophy of sport. But so the book, in fact, ended up, I mean, I did, I did the blog for a while. I had about 20 posts and then, then it turned into a book. And the book's got five sections, each with three or four chapters. So the first one, is called focus and that's all about setting yourself to do something when actually doing it will be unconscious so hmm. uh it's uh, the chapters there are having your mind right in the blink of an eye it's all to do the time constraints and then there's a chapter on choking and the yips and i distinguish choking and the yips and i i show how my my analysis of action control in sports illuminates what's going on when you people choke and when they when they get the yips. So that's, that's the focus and action control. And then there's a completely different topic. I talk about, about rules, about uh, breaking, the, breaking the officials' rules, breaking the, the players' rules, the players' code of fair play, breaking moral rules. Sometimes what the players think is, is fair play is in fact, uh, pretty immoral. I mean, think about the cyclists. They were all doping. They all thought that was part of what they expected of each other, but mm -hmm. but it was awful. It was hypocritical. It, it was uh, so. There's there's a whole lot of stuff about cheating and conventions and uh, and gamesmanship and morality. And then I talk about teams and uh, I talk about about the psychology of being a fan, which is a pretty weird thing. I mean, there you are and you think it's really important that the 
the Mets win. The Mets is my my baseball team in New York, but but I don't think it's really important because I can see that they're all these Yankee fans. They're perfectly good human beings, and uh, for them it's important that the Yankees. So how can something be important but only in the eyes? I talk about that a bit. Only in the eyes of one bunch of people, and that's the section in which I do talk a bit about about the importance of thinking as a team and how a successful team, and I think this generalizes beyond sports, isn't made up of a bunch of individuals each thinking about what's their own best rational thing to do. It's rather a unit that somehow it's decided this is what we need to do and then everybody plays their part. Just like here's an analogy, when I decide to do something, my arms and legs play their part. They don't start worrying, is this the right best solution for me? Uh, we're all a team together. So I, 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 I talk about that quite a lot in the section on teams. And, and then there's some social and political stuff. I've got a section on tribes about uh, uh, um, can immigrants become citizens and play for the national team? It's an issue that's going on. Hmm. all over the place now. I mean, perhaps not so much in the States because international sport's not such a big thing for you, but but in Europe, I mean, it's a huge issue. I mean, Mesut Ozil's one of my favourite football players. Uh, he's German, but he's a Turkish heritage and there's been a big hoo-ha about whether he's tries hard enough for Germany and, uh, and he said he's not going to play for Germany anymore. It's a big, big issue. Uh, I also talk in that chapter about, about how sporting excellence runs in families, in some sports, but not so much in other sports. And in, here's, here's a statistic I start off with. In cricket, cricket, which is a big sport in the rest of the world, and in Britain, 650 men have represented England at cricket. And one quarter of them, over 150 have a father or a brother who play cricket for England. Completely flabbergasting statistic. Hmm. So, uh, and um, you get a bit of it in the States. Ice hockey runs in families. Uh, yeah, the lacrosse does too. Yeah. Uh, uh, which, so, which do you think runs in families? Lacrosse, for sure. If you, oh, if you look at college lacrosse players and okay. you look at what it, you ask them all what percentage of their yeah. fathers or brothers or cousins um, played Division One college lacrosse. The number would probably be – I would bet it might even be higher than 25%. Yeah. It's a very small – So, so I, I have fun with that because I say cricket and, and, and soccer, two big British sports, uh, chalk and cheese here. I mean, the soccer is yeah, it's one or two families, but nothing like the same. And I say, well, therefore, you might think cricket is – is somehow genetic, that it's passed from parents to children, there's special genes you need to be good at cricket. But in fact, when I, I analyze it all, I come to the conclusion that that's absolutely the wrong way around. And what's going on is that cricket requires, just like lacrosse, rather special environment. Not everybody gets the opportunity to try themselves out at cricket. And when you do get the opportunity, you have to, I mean, it's very unnatural, you have to train a lot. And uh, whereas soccer, every kid gets to, so, so in soccer, uh, it's the genes that make more difference and in cricket's environments and right. i draw a general moral i mean 
Francis Galton in the 19th century wrote a famous book, Hereditary Genius, saying, look, here are all these things that run in families, music, mathematics, uh, being a statesman. So it's all genetic. And I say he had it completely the wrong way around. If, yeah. if, it, run, um, if it runs in families like that, it's almost certainly uh, environmental. Because if it's genetic, uh, one of your parents outstanding, the other one's not going to be so outstanding and you won't be outstanding yourself. So it's only with the environment that so it's tightly tightly linked across generations. So that, that's a fun chapter. Yeah. Now we're through to the final section of the book, which is values. And I talk quite a lot about, about amateurism and I say quite a bit about American college sports in that context. And I talk about traditions and why are different sports important in different countries. And then I do have a final chapter on, on the value of sport. Why is sport, why is sport important? So, yeah, but that's the whole book that you, you, you've got a, com a complete preview there in, in, in five minutes. Wow. No, that's awesome, David. This book is so interesting. There's so much packed in there and gosh, just to go back, um, the idea of athletes, and sport kind of being a, a particle accelerator. I mean, that makes so much sense to me. I don't know if, you know, listeners out there know the purpose of a particle accelerator, but it, it really is kind of a microcosm of how humans interact with each other. But just on this, like you said, intense, extremely focused, small scale um, with a intense environment, high pace, stressful, and you can see how people interact with each other, how they interact with adversity, how they interact in competition. And God, that's just such a great, I've never heard it explained that way or even framed in that, in that mindset. So I, I yeah, when you start yeah. looking at it that way and you use sport as kind of a, a microscope into regular everyday philosophical questions i'm sure it's it's almost like a um like a petri dish of kind of yeah. seeing how things interact so i love i love the idea of that exactly. um, and then your your control action action control control action theory what was that well so look so i guess the standard philosophical view is if you're acting deliberately according to a plan that at every moment your kind of conscious control is telling you what to do and telling you to carry out the plan. So, you know, you, you plan to, I don't know, walk to the shops and then walk. I mean, you're consciously, you know, you're walking to the shops and you, that's why you turn left and so on. And I've always been a bit suspicious of that. And so here's another model is that before you leave home, you set yourself the plan and then you hand it over to automatic control. And in fact, if you think about it, that's kind of what you do. And you can be thinking about your next paper or uh, where you're going for dinner when you walk into the shop. You don't have to remind yourself consciously to turn, to turn left. So that's the theory I favor. But the thing about the sporting examples with the fast reaction sports is it proves that the second view must be correct because there's no time to start consciously thinking. I mean, right. You're waiting for a ball over the middle of the plate, or you're waiting, you're waiting for your opponent at tennis to, to drop the ball a bit short, and then you'll hit it to the backhand, right? But, I mean, if you're, if you're playing in top-class men's tennis, uh, the time the ball's dropped a bit short is kind of only a half a second from 
when the guy hit it and you don't have time to think, aha, that's what I've been waiting for. Now I'll play it to the backhand. What's happened is before the game started or before the set started, uh, you said, I'll wait for that. And when it comes, I'm going to hit it to backhand. And then you hand all that over to unconscious control. Right. So the sporting example shows that, that you can form a deliberate plan and then hand it over to unconscious control and right. it will carry it out. And, and it's very interesting to think how must the brain be structured to allow that kind of quite detailed, detailed plan to be handed over to the unconscious control mechanisms. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, being, being an athlete myself, I don't know anyone not an athlete, how much they can kind of put themselves in that situation. But when you lay it out that way, that makes perfect sense to me in my mind. You know, when I was, I, I grew up playing tennis competitively and competitively until I was about 13, but you're right. And even in lacrosse, like if you're playing defense or offense and you have a one-on-one dodging situation, you know, how the two of them react. And then based on, you know, what the one person does, the other person immediately reacts, but that's not just an instinctive reaction. It's a, it's a plan and a drill that you've gone over and over and over that just gets handed over, like you said, um, to the young. And when you, when you look at the sports science, I mean, the Australians have done a lot of sports science. I, 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 I guess that's happening in baseball too. When you look at the science, I mean, what I'm talking about isn't obvious because when you remember what happened, you remember consciously seeing the ball coming and swirling. Exactly. Uh, but in fact, all that is constructed afterwards. Yep. I mean, uh, you're not, by the time you're conscious of where the ball is, it's gone past you already. I mean, that half second, I mean, it takes, it takes half a second or I mean, to get a fully focused picture of what's going on takes something of the order of half a second. And in the really sparse sports at the elite levels, the ball's gone already. So, so you're kind of doing a post hoc reconstruction of what happened. No, no doubt that's important for, so you can learn from yes, exactly. But, but it's not what's guiding your reaction. It's just not, uh, it can't be. No, and that makes it makes perfect sense too because you know two two thoughts here, David is you know one um, when you may not be playing well in whatever sport it may be, sometimes the cause of that is overthinking, and you'll hear your coach or even even your teammates say, "Hey, you're thinking about it too much," which just goes to show you the less you think and the more you rely on your your unconscious mind to take over for you and just do what you have practiced, do the skill that you know you need to do. Instead That's of thinking it. about it, you hand it over to your unconscious. And then the second part of that is, you know, you don't, 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 don't try and interfere with unconscious. Right. That, exactly. Just let it, that, let it because that's that, what people always say, you know, peak athletic performance is that quote unquote flow state where you're really not even aware of what you're doing at the time. And like you said, it's not until afterwards you're like, wow, I was in this state. Oh, and let me, I, let me go back and reconstruct what I was doing. But it's, it's only when you completely let go of the thinking, hand it well, all. You should, read my, you should read my three chapters. I mean, there's a lot of dimensions to that because there's another yeah. side to it, as you'll know, as a, as a serious athlete. I mean, I've been at my, at my level. Is that going with the flow business doesn't mean that you can empty your mind and start daydreaming. Because right. that's, that's fatal too. You've got right. to be focused. You've got to really concentrate on what you're doing. So what I say is what you have to concentrate on is your plan, right? So you've got to hold in mind, right. I'm looking to, to put it to the backhand. 
and don't start thinking about where you're going out tonight because then you'll forget that that's your plan and you won't it won't control your action anymore right but what you focus on has to be at the level of you know general strategy the general yes. strategy and do not start thinking about okay now it's time to put it to the backhand so i better twist my body to the to the right to, to be able to right. space for the shot because that's fatal so so my idea is you have to think about the end you're trying to achieve but you must not think about about the means the movements the, the individual tactics the the, the technique that, that you use to achieve that and that's why I, I talk about choking and the yips i distinguish choking which is when you start getting anxious about winning or about losing and somehow that distracts you from your plan so you don't have your plan controlling your actions anymore yeah i say it's choking the yips is when you start trying to control your actions at a detailed level of how's your wrist going to move and so on mm. and and that's that's awful and uh you know about yips is a term that comes from oh. golf yeah and and you str uh, you try and control your putting stroke and you think that was easy that's not a fast thing but you start trying to you know keep your wrist stiff try and accelerate through the ball You've got to do that on the practice screen. You can't do that when you're competing. Right, right. Yeah, I think golf is such a, a great analogy yeah. for for that whole process because it really anybody who tells you who you know who loves being horrible at golf like me, um, yeah. it, as soon as you start thinking about oh maybe I need to I need to not turn my wrist over so much. I need to you know swing outside in. I need to slow down my backswing. I need to speed up my backswing. I need to make contact earlier. Whenever you start thinking about all those things, like your, your, your shot goes completely out the window, but you know, two holes later when your, your round is completely trashed and you just say to yourself, you know what, I'm just going to hit the ball. You somehow magically you start hitting the ball well again. So it's, and, and I say magically, but really it's not magic because we just explained why those things happen. Yeah. Don't tell me. I, I had a good round of golf yesterday for the first time. Oh, it's great. I'm feeling I'm feeling good about the sport. That's good. Yeah, that's what uh, that's what keeps you coming back is those you know, a couple shots around or or a good round overall will get you back on the course the next time. Um, yeah. So the book itself, knowing the score, it it wow. There's like I said, just so much packed into there. Um, you know, I think we could kind of move over to kind of that values and moral section of the book you were talking about. Um, I find that really interesting you know this being the, the you know little mini series on the philosophy of support so i know you said when you first started writing the blog and you were kind of getting into this that the traditional philosophy of sport kind of was boring to you but you know i'd be remiss without asking you what do you think the purpose of sport is and and i that that could be like how you've laid out in your book kind of just observing humans in that kind of environment and being able to find answers to. So it, I, I think, I think it's very simple. I, I do. I mean, I, I said that I, when I first was asked to do something on philosophy of sport, I started writing about the nature and value of sport and I wasn't getting anywhere. In fact, in the book, I do end up with a final chapter on that, but I, I had, what I'm going to say is in fact, very, obvious and boring but it was worth saying because it's not the standard philosophical view 
There's a rather nice book written by a philosopher of sport, Bernard Suits, a Canadian, called The Grasshopper. And he defines what a game is. He's got this really nice definition of a game. And a game is the voluntary overcoming of unnecessary obstacles to an arbitrary end. So the idea is you, you, you have some, some uh, end, get the ball in the hole on the golf course, you know, hit the ball past your opponent in tennis. And then, and then there's arbitrary restrictions on how you're allowed to do that. You know, right. you're not allowed to pick up the ball and carry it. You've got to hit the ball with a tennis racket and so on. And, and the philosophers all think that's really interesting. And it is a nice definition of, of a game. And then their thought is, many of them, shoots, that, that what's valuable about sport is that, is that we overcome these obstacles. And they're arbitrary obstacles. We set them for ourselves, but we overcome them, and that's somehow worthy. And I, I think about, I thought about, and I thought that, that's a ridiculous theory. I mean, if it's not, if it's not, you know, uh, worth worth uh, getting a ball in the hole, it's not worth getting a whole ball in a hole when it's made arbitrarily difficult. What's the what's right. the, the, what's in, the difference in that? And I, I, I say, look, this has all got it wrong. And in fact. Uh, the value of sport is nothing much to do with overcoming the obstacles in a game. And the, the most obvious way of showing that is that there are plenty of sports that aren't games. So uh, tennis is a game, baseball is a game, but the 100 meter sprint isn't a game. Right. Uh, windsur point. Windsurfing isn't a game. Uh, and so there are plenty of sports that aren't games. And there are plenty of games. I mean, think of card games. I don't know. Uh, children's but you games. Don't necessarily consider sport. sports. So, so this focus on games that the philosophers have so got into is just misplaced. And I think that when you think about it, what holds together all the sports, some of which are games and some of which aren't, is that they involve athletic skill. They involve physical skill. Right. And. And thinking about it, I came to the view that sport is just any activity that uh, fosters the exercise of physical skill. And I think, look, it's very natural to human beings to, to prize, to develop, and to admire physical skill. Look, we're physical beings, we're, we're sophisticated animals, and... Uh, one of the special things about humans is the extent to which we can think of all our tool use, all our hunting and so on, develop physical skills to an extreme degree. And for humans, that's something that's just terribly valuable, pleasurable, something to admire. And I think that's all that's going on with sport. It's just the, the development, admiration and celebration of physical skills. And yeah. in fact, that, fit, that fits all the examples of sports. I mean, the, 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 the games that are sports are sports because they allow, they allow something which is valuable in itself, physical skill. I mean, it's true that, you know, tennis wouldn't happen if there was this game with arbitrary rules and you wouldn't have cross-court backhands without the game and the rules. But exercising a cross-court backhand is a skill which is valuable in itself. Uh, that's what I think. Uh, yeah. So, no, I like how you, you simplify and you don't try to overcomplicate it. 
And it's yeah. really just what has the inherent value. Obviously, it's not, it's not, it's not only valuable because they're overcoming an obstacle. Because like you said, if it's not impressive without the obstacle, it's not impressive in general, or it's not valuable in general. So I think that's a great way of framing kind of the purpose. And then, but it's, it's okay to define that as the purpose of sport or the, you know, first principle inherent value of sport and then say, okay, but what else can we pull out of this Yeah, as valuable to society? And like you have laid out in your book, knowing the sport, laid out how sport kind of gives us the answers to a lot of these philosophical questions. So look, I mean, questions. it's not an either or issue. So right, exactly. So look, I mean, there's many things that sports good for, right? It makes you fit and healthy. It teaches you cooperation and teamwork. It teaches you, if you ask me, this is a very important thing. It teaches you how to overcome disappointment, how to cope with, yeah. how to cope with failure. Uh, but uh, so I don't want to deny those things, but I don't think they're, I mean, somebody says, yeah, why do we have sports? Why is it valuable? And they start going on about that. I think they're missing the point. I mean, even apart from those things, the first thing is that people uh, take enjoyment and pride in physical, physical yeah. skill. So one thing I, I mentioned in passing in the book as way of uh, further evidence of this is think of all the activities that don't start off as sports. So the, the, the first sporting event. Look, I'm not sure that's right. It's the first sporting event. You're going to have a trouble there. Look, the, the oldest rowing race in the, in the world is Doggett's Coat and Badge. And it's still rolled every year on the Thames. And it started off as a race for professional watermen people right. who rode cargoes and taxis yep. on the Thames for a living. And of course, being, you know, uh, energetic young men, they started to take pride in how well they could row. Right. And naturally enough, they decided they wanted to have, to have a competition to see who was the best, who could do it best. And I mean, and if you think about all the, all the economic activities, work activities that, turn into sports i don't know uh, uh trailer truck reversing uh, yeah uh, uh bar racing uh bar racing what's bar racing no no car 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 racing the, the car, the car racing. With the, uh, uh, it started uh, out with bootleggers trying uh, to have the fastest back during prohibition it was you know who yeah. the fastest cars to outrun the police and then it turned into racing and then it, now we have exactly. professional race car drivers Exactly. I can't, I mean, I can't catfish noodling. I mean, I, I, I had a long list of, of yeah. those. But, I mean, but in fact, I've got a book. So, uh, somebody after reading my book sent me this book. There's a, there's a book on American work sports. And it was more of a oh. thing earlier in the last century. All kinds, you know, the, the, the fire departments had, had competitions for who could yeah. do the the best. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely natural to human beings to... to to want to see whether they can do something physically as well as it's possible. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a great way to look at it. It's an interesting question. How far, if you think of it like that, competition is essential to sport. And I tend to downplay competition. I think that a lot of athletes, I mean, a lot of amateur athletes are doing it not for the competition at all. I mean, I, uh, you know, half of us are going to lose. I mean, we can't be doing it in order to, to win. Uh, 
and I think we're kind of doing it in order to see if we can do it as well as we can. And the competition is kind of a, a consequence of wanting to see whether you're doing it as well as you can. I don't know if I want to push that all the way, but, but I don't think competition is as crucial to sport as some people think. I mean, if you think about golf, I mean, uh, I'm delighted that I went round in 87 yesterday. That's very good for me. Uh, and I came third in the competition, but I'd be just, as, just as happy. I mean, I mean uh, it, you know, coming first wouldn't have made me any more happy. What made me happy is, is, is that I've played better than I have done for the past few months. Uh, no, you're right. You're exactly right. And I think that's a, another, yeah, golf seems to be the perfect analogy for sport here today, David. But no, I, I agree with you. And I think, again, it's a great way to compare sport to everyday life in that it's not necessarily about competing with those around you, whether it be, you know, colleagues at work or another business that's competing with your business. But it really is, are you are you achieving your fullest potential? When are you, are you bettering yourself on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? And if you are, like you said, you really only have to compare yourself to yourself. And I think, again, you know, that is kind of a philosophical question that gets yeah. answered through sport. And again, through golf as the perfect analogy, because like, you're exactly right. I, I don't, I've had some of my worst rounds, but I end up winning out of the foursome and I'm not I'm I walk away kind of down because I'm just like oh I didn't, I didn't really win we all just played bad but like you said I play with guys that are way better than me and I have the the highest score in the group but you know it's the best round I've had in six months then I'm I'm stoked I don't care what the other guy scored exactly. it's good for me exactly so but you were talking about individuals there and perhaps just Final thing, I should could say a little bit about about the teams and the team reasoning because it's because it's relevant to your your overall theme of your your podcast generally, which is when we're talking about team sports, right? I think it's crucial that the individuals and in the team stop thinking as individuals. Mm -hmm. So I think of the team as a uh, a unit and the team is going to make a decision about what's the right thing for the team. And, and then everybody's going to play their part. And I think that you just aren't going to get the same results. This is kind of pretty obvious. If you've got each member of the team thinking, well, what's best for my interest? What's going to make me shine? What's going to make my transfer value going up? Once you've got the team thinking like that, then, then it doesn't operate as a team. And indeed, in, in, in sports that involve teamwork, like, like, uh, like soccer or, or American football, it's going to be hopeless because you won't be able to predict what other players are going to do. Uh, but there's two sides to teamwork. And uh, I was thinking about leadership. One, one idea is how does the team arrive at a decision? Do they all kind of discuss and debate and, and uh, arrive at what's best for the team democratically? That's one side to it. But the other side to it is once they've arrived at a decision, then everybody has to play their part 
without moaning. I mean, if, if you know, it's better for the team that you, the star shortstop, go and play in the outfield because nobody else can play in the outfield and somebody else can play shortstop. Uh, it's no good if you, you then start moaning and right. play heavily just to kind of try to get back to shortstop. So, so I think more important, if you're thinking about teamwork, is not... Should we have democratic decisions or should we have a leader making decision? I mean, there's going to be context in which you need one, context in which you need the other. But however the decision is made, once it's made, everybody has to be committed to playing their part. And I think that's a crucial part of teamwork is that, is that you, just like my arms do what they are told to do when I've made a decision, the players in the team all do what they need to do once this decision is made. And it doesn't matter too much if decisions made by a strong leader, democratic decisions, and so on. As long as it's, once it's made, everybody does their part. That's the crucial thing. Right, right, right. And that's the, the hard part about leadership that we try to get out on yeah. the podcast is, okay, what are some things you do to create that buy-in? Because that's, like you said, it, yeah. it doesn't do any good if you, you know, you can force the shortstop to co-play outfield, but if he's yeah. not doing it willingly, and he's doing it begrudgingly and isn't putting his best effort into it, it doesn't do you any good. He's going to listen to you to do that, but only because you're forcing him to. But the, the hard part about leadership is getting, it, it's almost convincing that person that that's actually what they want to do. Because what they want to do is have the team succeed. And they know that's the best way for the team to, to succeed. So it's creating the buy-in and the trust that what you're doing and the path you're going is in everyone's best interest because that's the culture and the environment that you've cultivated as a leader. So it's really, it, it is, that is, I, I think, a great way to, to frame why teamwork is important and why the team first mentality is important because. It's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's not, it's not that hard. No. I mean, it's, it's very natural to humans to, I mean, I don't, I work in university, departments all my life we well it's not true of every department it's true of a lot of departments we start to want the department to do well and we take right. pride in the department winning in the league tables and so on and uh it's i mean yeah, these are academics and they live very selfish i mean isolated lives but it's it's not hard to get us to kind of pull together to want the team to win and that's that's a crucial thing that's 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 what you need to get teams working as a unit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I would completely agree with you, David. Um, yeah. Before, before I let you go, uh, do you have any other kind of, you know, I think we've kind of tangentially touched some of these, but are there any other pet peeves that you have with sports philosophy or the philosophy of sport in today's world or, or any assumptions that you think coaches and athletes have that kind of go unchallenged in, in the world of, sports or the philosophy of sports or as 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 a englishman talking to an american about sport and uh time you started playing the college athletes that's that's my pet peeve i think it's such a weird and distorted thing i mean i i i would hate to lose uh college sporting competitions i mean that's a wonderful tradition and very important to many people but I don't think you'd lose that if you if you started treating the athletes as professionals rather than amateurs. Uh, and I, 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 
don't think the system's sustainable as it is. So that's my pet peeve. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. I'm sure your, your opinion's a lot more uh, fleshed out than mine, but no, that's a, uh, I think that's a great, a great I mean, if you're interested, look at the, there is a chapter on amateurism in uh, the book and I compare the situation to, I mean, you won't remember, but when I was young, the Olympics, tennis, uh, all kinds of sports were forced to be amateur. Uh, because basically the middle class practitioners didn't want to have to compete with people who were full time. Yes. But but it, it led to such distortions and sham amateurism and terrible, terrible injustices to people who were too poor to to be full time athletes without without the income. And all the great tennis players who had to quit playing in the Grand Slams in order to go and earn a living trudging around the world in Jack Kramer's tennis circus, awful, awful thing. I mean, Rod Laver was, was, I think, six years, eight years out of, of top-ranked tennis to because he had to make a living. I mean, uh, and, but, but when, and everybody said, look, when, when uh, the amateurism is abolished and it's all professional, it's all going to be terrible. But it wasn't. It, in fact, uh, the only result was everybody thought, thank God for that. Thank God we got rid of all that hypocrisy. Um, yeah. So, uh, and I, I don't see why it shouldn't happen the same in American college sports. Uh, no, that's a good point. That's a good way to look at it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of athletes in the United States that get kind of hurt by it. Um, you know, specifically off the top of my head, tennis players and, and hockey players, it's very common for them to go play, um, hockey players at least, they'll go play in, you know, the junior, the junior leagues or they'll play in minor league hockey before they go to college and it's, you know, they have to make a decision. Okay. Do I start making money now or do I basically, you know, if I have the ability continue living off my parents or do I kind of have to to suck it up and live off of crumbs? Yeah. yeah. Because, Because then if I take money, I can no longer play in college and, that's, you know, my way of getting an education. And same thing for tennis. They Not just, I mean, sure, it's your way of getting it. But, but in a lot of sports, it's your best way of getting into the big leagues. Right, so, exactly. And uh, if you can't take money before, and or you accidentally do, now you're ineligible to play in college sports forever, or you have to sit out a year or two. So it just, it just complicates things. And there's actually a good, a good show on Netflix, a little mini-series um, called The English Game. I don't know if you've seen it, but... It's um, it's about soccer or football, um, American soccer in in the UK and kind of how it started getting big and you know it was the first you know the beginnings of the FA Cup and it, you know it focuses on two characters but kind of the backdrop is well, I, I I should I should look at that no so so English soccer is very interesting in that it never went amateur it was always. Uh, amateurs playing against professionals it's very interesting right and it's it is the 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 backs you know it's it's backdropped against the conversation of you know the amateurs amateurs arguing that professionals shouldn't be allowed to play they're making a mockery of the sport having amateurs or people being played paid to play the game um and then it's kind of the argument of you know this actually will be the best thing for the sport so um, if, if you look at the sociology of it uh I guess soccer was too big. Working men's soccer was too big for the amateurs to stay out of it. But, but all the amateurism was precisely designed to allow stockbrokers and lawyers to carry on playing top-level sport 
and not being outcompeted by by people who are doing it for a living. Look, I start off the chapter with such a wonderful story. So the the rowers at Henley used to have very strict rules about how those watermen from the Thames could not come and compete at Henley. So they had a rule saying that anybody who'd ever worked as a manual laborer could not row at Henley in, in the you know, top ranked British rowing. And Jack Kelly came across from Philadelphia. He was a top American rower and turned up at Henley. And they said, no, you can't compete. You started your working life as a bricklayer. And, and it was a scam. It was a scam. It was back at back in the back in the twenties. I mean, of course, he you know he went on to become a uh, multimillionaire and a building contractor and uh, father-in-law of the Prince of Monaco, and uh, he did fine. But uh, but uh, there you are. I mean, that's that's the that's the stockbrokers and the lawyers trying to keep uh, the competition out. Uh, shameful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, David. Uh, uh... I actually have to have to run here for a hard out, but um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Please, everyone out there, get a copy of David's book, Knowing the Score. Uh, so, so interesting. I'm definitely going to download it uh, today because, you know, those five sections you kind of broke down, I think there are going to be a lot of answers to questions that we all have when it comes to sports or questions that we may never have even thought about, um, that the answers are right in front of us. So, uh, I can't stress it enough. Knowing the score, please get a copy. David, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Uh, any last words for the listeners? No, that's it. That's fine. It's been a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Thank awesome. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Captain's Coach Podcast with Luke Bullet. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review on iTunes and check out our website at captainscoach.com. Join us next time for another edition of the Captain's Coach Podcast.